You're listening to Productive Flourishing. Thanks for joining us today. I think the thing that I that is foremost in what I learned is that you that I don't have to know how to do something to actually do it. I have to think that I want to do it and move my feet forward and then learn how to correct when I go the wrong direction or correct and go in a different direction. And and that process has been very much that kind of thing where I start in some direction and it's like, oh, well, can't put the fence there because there's a rock or you can't do it this way because of that. And then there's correction. And and then looking back, there's something else that gets created than maybe what I expected in the beginning. That was Lee Rankin, the owner of Apple Hill Farm, an award-winning agritourism business in North Carolina. She joins me today to talk about the challenges and triumphs of starting a farm from scratch and growing it while being a single mom in the middle of North Carolina. While her story is ostensibly about the farm, within it are the same patterns and principles that we see in all types of creative work and businesses. I'm Charlie Gilkey, and this is Productive Flourishing. Welcome to Productive Flourishing, where we explore how to do the work that matters so you become your best self in the world. I'm your host, Charlie Gilkey, and I'm joined by Angela Wheeler and other guests who will share their stories, insights, wins, and challenges in the hopes that our journeys and stories will help you with yours. Now, on to the show. Lee, thanks so much for joining me today on the podcast, and I'm really excited to have you share your story because it's really um, a fun story and one that I enjoy hearing. And so I always know if it's a fun story that I enjoy hearing that other people are going to love to hear it too. So thanks so much for joining me today. It's great to be here and it's great to see your smile. Oh, thank you. Um, so you started a farm of all things. Um, mm-hmm. and we're talking about, you know, Apple Hill farm, which we'll, we'll have, we'll talk a little bit more about, but it's always one of those interesting things. Like you would think that maybe, you know, a, you know, farm girl might start her own farm and things like that, but that's not quite where you started things from. So take us back to the beginning of before you started the farm and really why you decided, um, why you decided to go that route. Okay. So I was, let's see, 40 years old and had a son who was one and a half at the time. And I had met an alpaca at the Kentucky State Fair, only because I had a child who was one and took him to the, the Kentucky State Fair to see the animals. Um, I'm also an animal nut. So when we were at the fair, I met an alpaca and literally time stopped. And there was this moment between myself and this alpaca who I don't even know if it was male or female. I know what color it was. And I just literally fell into the eye of this alpaca. Um, everything disappeared. The fact that I had a son and a stroller in front of me disappeared. And I had this thought and it was, that's what I want to do is raise alpacas. So I was in Louisville, Kentucky at the time, and I was caring for an elderly person, Annie, who had been my nanny growing up. And she was in the final stages of her life. And as soon as she died, um, I said, that's it. I'm free. God has given me permission to do what it is that I want to do. The reason I'm here in Louisville is to take care of her. And so the first thing that we did literally was uh, go to North Carolina to find a place. And I'd been to this area of North Carolina before, but to find a place to rent for a month to look for property. And to answer the voices in my head, which were, you are absolutely stark raving mad to up and move with a two-year-old in tow or a -a one-and-a-half-year-old in tow to a place you know no one to do something you know nothing about, um, the answer was always, if it's the right thing to do, I'm going to find the piece of property that I can't say no to. And then I found that piece of property. So we were here for four weeks. And in between two and three, we found the piece of property. And it took us a little bit, a little bit of convincing myself that that was it. And it was much bigger than I wanted and was up a very curvy road, which was a little scary. And But it had everything that I had asked for. So that's how it started. All right. So you started the farm because the alpaca told you to do it or because 
Uh, well, because knew. I fell in love with an alpaca and I was at a place in my life where I was literally ready for that next thing. I don't think it would have happened if I'd been in the middle of something big already. It would have been a big, a different decision, but I was ready for the next thing. And I had fulfilled my commitment in Kentucky. So it seemed appropriate to just up and move. Yeah. I mean, so I know Lee, and so I can I can joke around with saying like the alpaca, the alpaca made her do it, right? Um, but no, it's but not seriously. Um, I've had some experiences with alpacas and animals before. I don't know what it is about the alpaca man that they're like they're these weird sort of creatures um, that, that have profound experiences on people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And it's it's it sounds crazy to talk about until you know you're at a fair. And you're looking in the eyes of an alpaca and everything disappears or something like that, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I haven't seen this happen with, say, goats or rabbits or anything nearly as much as, as this specific animal. No, I think I think that there is there is something there about the alpaca. They date back to Incan times. And my supposition of it is that they still have that energy pattern intact. And so that's one of the things that draws people in. It's one of the reasons that when people come to the farm, that they fall into the same thing and they fall silent for minutes at a time and have no idea anything's happened while they're standing with me at the fence looking at the alpacas. Hard to explain, but it's a thing, folks. It's, it's a straight up a thing. Um, so um, you're... Why did you go to North Carolina? I've never asked you this. Why North Carolina? Well, I had been I had been here for book signings for the cookbook, um, and I had been twice. And I was before I was in Louisville. I lived in the Catskill Mountains of New York, and I had fallen in love with mountain and rural living. And so I wanted to be in the mountains, but be a little bit closer to Kentucky. My father was still alive at that point. Um, it was a seven hour drive versus thirteen. So there was a there was some logic behind that. Mm-hmm. So okay. and and we really when we looked at North Carolina, there was a whole list of I wanted a place that had community, that people wanted to be in community with one another, where there were um, restaurants that were open full time, things like that. Okay, so yeah, it wasn't just I mean as much as I tease about it being out of the blue, like North Carolina, you know, made sense on a lot of different sort of. Vectors along with that route. So, um, okay. And it's okay if it did make sense because we've also had, you know, really amazing things happen when we make this completely non-logical decision to be like, I'm going to up and move there or I'm going to change my career or something like that. So it doesn't have to make sense for it to be, um, to be something one should do. Right. Okay. So, you find property in North Carolina. Everything's golden from then, right? So it's just, you know, the farm took off. All the people came in. They fell in love with alpacas. And that's the end of the story. Not exactly. Not exactly. <laughs> um, you know, there's a lot of stories you could tell about this. But um, what were sort of the first top three things that you learned about yourself, more importantly, than about farming? Because that's really what what... I think something like this shows is yes, external things are important. There's all sorts of crazy things that happen, but what did you learn about yourself through this process that um, is really important to, to capture? I think the thing that I, that is foremost in what I learned is that you, that I don't have to know how to do something to actually do it. I have to think that I want to do it and move my feet forward and and then learn how to correct when I go the wrong direction or correct and go in a different direction. And and that process has been very much that kind of thing where I start in some direction and it's like, oh, well, can't put the fence there because there's a rock or you can't do it this way because of that. And then there's correction. And and then looking back, there's something else that gets created than maybe what I expected in the beginning. So I can do something I don't know how to do. So first lesson, you can do something you don't know how to do. Any other major lessons? I'm much uh, braver and more courageous than I had any idea looking back on it. 
looking back on it. That's yeah. interesting that you bring up because there's a philosopher. I think his name is Bernard Williams. Um, I'm losing my grip on names and who said what um, turns out being a decade away, but he talks about moral luck, right? And that it seems that there are times and spaces where it, we show up and we have certain things that happen and because only because we're in that scenario, do we get to manifest these things like bravery and courage? Mm -hmm. Whereas were we not in that situation that may not have happened and so um, we can keep going with that. But I think that's an important piece to pull out. Um, and I say this because a lot of people will ask me sometimes around what happened when in military service and, and things like that. And they're like, wow, I can never do those things. And I'm like, you actually don't know if you would do those, like mm -hmm. what you would do in that circumstance, right? A lot right. of people think they right. will do X and they do Y, right. right? And they think they would do Y and they end up doing X. Or you get in the middle right. of it and you lose track of yourself anyways and you just do stuff. And then later on, you we attach labels like, oh, that was really brave. And at the time it was like, I was doing something, right? Right, right. Um, and that's so totally true. Totally. Because it's context, you know? It's... You know, whether it's your body or my body in that context, we might do the same thing or similar things. So, but you mentioned bravery and courage specifically, um, and those are interesting ones because you didn't mention like discipline, right? You didn't mention other sort of things like that. But what, what were some things that happened that really pulled out sort of the bravery and courage aspect of things? Well, it wasn't, it wasn't all uh, rainbows and unicorns to get to where we are now. Um, we had lots of challenges from weather, from things that happened on the farm, um, things that I would have never predicted would happen. And looking back on them, um, I, I'm just, I'm amazed that I made it through. I mean, I look back on it and think about it and think, how in the world did I know what to do or how to do or to keep going on and in the midst of it to raise a child solo? So it wasn't just me. So there was whatever was happening, and then I was also raising a child. And that takes a certain amount of bravery and courage also. Yeah, I mean, pull us into this, though, because it's easy to say, like, you know, looking back over the last, you know, <laughs> little bit of like, yeah, there were a lot of courageous things, but there are actually like really important things happen. So go ahead and pull us into that, though. Okay, so okay, so one of the first things that happened um, six months into raising alpacas, we had five alpacas on the property. Um, it was brand new. We had just sheared our alpacas and we had an attack on them, which I was pretty sure was mountain lion. Um, but nobody was really clear what it was. But we lost four out of five alpacas. And I came home. It happened broad daylight. I had been with them in the morning, had coffee with them, had taken Will to preschool and had gone to town to meet with a lawyer, actually, to do some sort of legal something that I needed to do and came back and there were bodies everywhere. The fencing was down. There was, you know, one alpaca in the roadway. There was one still in the stall. There were two that had made it back up to the barn that they had been in before. There was one that I couldn't even find. Um, and, you know, in that moment, you don't have any idea. I Like, I had no idea what had happened, but in the moment, the things that I did, like I called four different vets to get their help because nobody could be with more than one alpaca at a time. They were in different locations. I called the fish game and wildlife guys because I thought it was a mountain lion. I called animal control because there was a dog there. Like in a period of 30 minutes, I did all these things that I would have never thought to do. And, you know, as that whole thing progressed, we ended up losing all but one. And because that one lived, we stayed in the business. So we continued to move forward because we had one that actually lived. And it was, you know, it was a long time before I could come home to the property and not count heads. I still, if there's an animal laying in the field today, Mojo, who was the one who was the sole survivor, was laying in the field. And I went over and I stood there until he got up because he might be dead. And for me, a laying animal is potentially a dead animal. Wow. Yeah. And during those times, were you actually concerned about your own safety? I mean, here you walk through and there, you know, are four attacked and mauled animals, right? Um, 
when you got out of your car and you did that, like, were you worried about yourself or are you just like, no, no it's not actually get- I wasn't, I wasn't never even thought about it. Never ne- thought about it till you asked that question. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I thought about it afterwards because Will was, you know, four feet tall and everybody kind of agreed that whatever the animal was that had attacked our animals was coming back. So we knew that there was a possibility of having whatever that was on the property, whether it was, you know, a mountain lion or a bear or whatever it was, was going to come back. So for we went through training on how to deal with it. So there was a lot of fear. We still have air horns at every barn. Um, I don't personally have a gun, but most people would at this point would have a gun to protect themselves from something like that. So, yeah, so there there is definitely some fear in that afterwards, but not in the moment. I had no no fear in the moment of my own safety, at least. Yeah, I was more concerned about the animals. And this kind of goes back to what we were talking about with bravery and courage, right? Because, you know, a few a few changes in the situation where you may have thought about your own safety, you might have acted differently, mm-hmm. right? Um, than sort of the sort of selfless way in which is really all about the animals and all about, mm-hmm. you know, what was going on in the exter- external situation. And again, that is one of those things that happens, right? Where mm-hmm. you're in a situation... And I think a lot of people think they would think about their own safety. Um, but we're the strange creature that at times like that can actually completely forget that we're part of the situation um, in right. that way. Right. Right. All right. So um, you came back with, you know, only one alpaca. So what is the alpaca business model? Like, how does that work that you can lose five of them and end up with one and still have, you know, the capability to go on? Well, I had insurance on the ones that died. Actually, the one that lived was the only uninsured animal, and it was also the only male. So, um, anyway, so he was the only one that lived, and I, um, and I, we had a buddy for him before the last one died, so he was never alone. And we had insurance, so we went and bought new animals, which was very hard to do. It was not an easy piece to do. So, and the business model, you're asking about the business model. So, some people buy alpacas to breed and sell. Some people buy to breed and sell and show. And some people buy just for the fiber. So, um, I was buying for the animal and we were planning to breed and show. That was sort of the model that we had was we were going to you know, breed these animals, we were going to go to shows, we were going to sell babies, that kind of thing. And that was the model we were following, which is why we had insured all the other alpacas that we bought. And they were very pricey at the time when we bought them. So it was, um, it was very important to insure them. They were, I mean, like any decent alpaca was over $10,000. So you wouldn't get into the business without insuring, at least if you were responsible about it. So on one, you know, random afternoon you lost at least forty thousand dollars i mean it's there's a live of the they're the lives of the animal right and that's an important piece but there's also an asset and that there's forty thousand dollars right gone right had it not been insured right right okay and so you pivoted from showing and selling alpacas to selling their fiber correct well we we stayed in the business um selling animals and then as time went on, we got um, the market wasn't as good and people started to come to the farm, mainly because we had had this attack and they heard the story um, and they wanted to come see the crazy lady on the hill that was raising alpacas and it had an attack. And the way that we protected um, the new animals that we brought on board was we added donkeys on the outside of their fields to protect them. So, all of our alpaca fields are enclosed with donkey pasture so that you have to go through the donkeys in order to get into the alpacas. Um, the field where we had the attack, we added a llama, actually two llamas that stayed inside that produced, they really all they gained was height and a bigger animal inside the field, which is what a predator is going to look at. Um, deciding whether or not to go in, they're going to look at the tallest thing in the, in the field and decide if they want to go in. And then um, we added goats because we knew that this animal was coming back for food. And so we bought meat goats 
as an as a way to have an offering for whatever this animal was if they needed meat. Very utilitarian. And and you know, it was interesting because at the time nobody agreed what had happened. And there was nobody in this area of the country that knew what to do. So we went out west and talked to people that we didn't go. We talked to people out west to find out what was the thing to do to protect our animals so we could move forward. And so that became a story. So suddenly we went from no animals on the property while everybody was at the hospital and while we got everything safe to donkeys and llamas and alpacas and goats. So it was a very different, it was a very interesting year. So we went from nothing to all sorts of things and it became a story. And then people started coming to hear the story. Interesting. So, yeah. Um, you know, I was talking to Lee about this before we had the conversation. And um, one of the interesting things about this is the parallels between general businesses, right? And like you would think that the rules that would work for, say, creative writing businesses are fundamentally different than the rules that might work for a farm, right? And and what happens. And what's really interesting here is what often happens in, you know, businesses of all types is that the first thing that you actually start your business um, on or for or around is not actually the thing that makes it profitable and viable, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's, it's, for lack of better words, it's, a, it's an uninformed mistake, right? Um, and then something happens, right? There's always this unexpected, right? Thing that happens, right? It's a, unexpected good can happen, but also unexpected bad can happen. And a lot of times they're in between, they're interwoven, right? Um, right. Because nothing attracts eyeballs like a terrible story, right? Unfortunately, right? And so sometimes there's a terrible story like, hey, crazy, crazy, I was going to call you a crazy cat lady, but you're not a crazy cat lady. And, <laughs> I have a, I have a fun love for all the crazy cat ladies of the world, right? Yes. Um, but crazy lady on the hill growing alpacas, first off, I'm in North Carolina. I'm not sure I know what the hell an alpaca is in the first place, right? So there's that, right? Um, but maybe right. North Carolinians know at the time had, you know, a lot of familiarities with alpacas. I'm not sure about that one, right? Um, but I'm going to go see what happened up there and maybe there's a mm-hmm. mountain lion, maybe there's not, mm-hmm. but then they discover something going on there. Right. They just like the story first is around sort of the tragedy, but I mean, I'm really curious here. Why do people keep coming? Cause it's been 2000. Like this was, well, when, when did you lose the animals? Two, uh, 2004, 2004. So here we are, 2017. They can't mm-hmm. still be coming back because no, of the No, they're not coming because of that story. They're coming now because what we have is this group of animals that work together and an experience of something that they're not used to seeing. So, you know, we're doing a tour, an educational tour, where we tell the story, but they're getting to experience being on a mountaintop, being away from their daily lives and experiencing something very real that they don't get a chance to see in their normal lives. Um, and how quickly did it become a, was it apparent to you that that's actually why people were coming? Like, that's not why they came, but that's what they experienced once they were there. Oh, it took a long time. It took a long, so we started out very slowly in the beginning, opening up just a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. And then, and really had to make some major shifts into being an agritourism farm, which meant that. We had the animals handled at such a level that we had the wherewithal and the energy and the time to spend with people who came. So we went from being sort of a farm to being a farm that's also open to agritourism. And then somewhere in there, we added a store. So now we're kind of three things. So we're like a farm and we do agritourism and we have this store. So we're, it's like a three-headed business. So bring us in. What is agritourism? Agritourism is... Tourism on a farm that has to do with agriculture or echo, you know, the land and looking at how vegetables are grown or how animals are raised or that kind of thing. And it's a very hot thing right now. People are very interested in seeing that process and people have gotten away from that process. You know, one of our customers, um, sort of our um, customer models is and a 70-year-old man who grew up on a farm who wants to show that to his grandchildren because they have no experience of a farm anymore and they've lost touch of, with it. Um, they don't know where eggs come from. They don't know 
you know, they think that it's sort of stereotypical. They think that that chocolate milk comes from a brown cow, not a white cow. And they like they don't have a sense of it. They don't know what asparagus looks like in a field. Um, they've never been around any sort of farming. So that's one of the things is that people are trying to um, communicate that to their families. And and families are looking for experiences that include the whole family. And we fit right into that with, with the agritourism side as they get to experience it. And we do a guided walking tour. So it's not like going to the zoo where you're just kind of on your own reading signs. I mean, you're really, you're with a guide who's guiding that experience and answering questions and teaching and explaining and telling stories through the whole thing. So it's like living history, like going to a living history museum. Yes. Okay. In and, a way. Yeah. In that kind of way. Yeah. In that kind of way. And that it's just like, yeah. here's, here's what it's like at the time, except for it's now, right? Like, except it's now it's now. And it's this group of animals and how they work together. You know, I mean, the fact that we have all these different animals working together, we've got a, a pet pig that we rescued that has a roommate that's a cat. And the two of them are, you know, like buddies, Mr. Pickles and Snickers, you know, like it's, we have things like that, that, that are very memorable. And we have livestock guardian dogs that now guard the goats we sell and raise. So, um, so we're using dogs to guard goats now. So we have this uh, very interesting community of animals that work together. Everybody has a purpose. Everybody has a role. Everybody has a name. And so it becomes like this animal working family that they get brought into when they come to visit. What's really interesting about this is, again, the fundamentally you're selling an experience. Right. Um, yeah. And. Well, amongst many other things, you also, you know, sell socks and all the other things mm -hmm. um, that are related to alpaca fur and, and, and stuff like that. So um, obviously I know a lot about alpacas and alpaca fur now, much more so than I used to. But um, I'll let you explain why, what, what is it about alpaca fur that makes it worth buying? Alpaca is hypoallergenic. And it's hollow cord, so it is warm without being hot. It's kind of like um, Polar Tech mm -hmm. in that it you can wear it outside and be warm, and you can walk inside and not be hot. So it has that ability to it, but it's also a natural fiber. And, um, you know, people are very interested in natural fibers these days and going back to something natural. It's um, very soft, so it has a really nice soft feel to it, and People find it like the vests that we have, people put them on and they're like, it's like wearing a hug. <laughs> so it, there's this there's this element to it that is um, more than the sum of its parts, I think, that people that appeal to people in this day and age. And our socks, we sell alpaca socks, but we have people that with fibromyalgia or um, plantar fasciitis or people who have lost toes that say it's the first time that their feet have ever been warm. Um, people with neuropathy say that it makes a difference to their feet. And I think it's really that we've gotten so far away from natural fibers against our skin that we don't know the power of that. There's very much a sense here of, um, not nostalgia. That's a wrong word. It's sort of, um, reclaiming nature or mm -hmm. experiencing a return. a return to nature and experiencing yeah. what it's like to see, actual animals in some, you know, in a broad array of symbiotic relationships, right. Mm -hmm. Um, that are not just human centered in the sense that like, you know, urban dwellers, a lot of times will see animals, but they're usually, you know, pets and the relationships that they mm -hmm. have with humans and the relationships that they have vis-a-vis -vis being pets, right. With each other, but not necessarily how they relate to other animals in the, in a broader mm -hmm. ecosystem. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so there's that. There's also the um, experiencing, you know, the feel of of natural fibers on one's skin, um, and what 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 that feels like as opposed to rayon and nylon and all the other mm -hmm. ons that we buy and put on ourselves, right? Um, and then um, I think it's also I'm going to steal that the ons, <laughs> <laughs> all the ons, um, all the ons. Yeah, maybe we need to turn off all the ons. Um, <laughs> But then you also, I think you've got 
um, people working on the farm. So tell us about your workers there and sort of the demography and who they are, because again, we might have not been to the farm. We might have a certain image of that. That may or may not be true. Right. Well, we have this, we have this incredible team of people. Um, the animals draw in the coolest people to work on the farm. And um, we have this great team. We have some people that have been on board for, well, Will's been on board for years, but Brianne, who kind of runs the farm, has been on board for six years now, which is just so wonderful. Um, we have a grad student who is working on his thesis on bumblebee DNA, and he's a biologist. Well, his undergrad degree was in biology, so he has all the biology. We we joke that he's in charge of the birds and the bees because he knows all about the birds, <laughs> and he studies the bumblebees. And um, and then we have um. A group of people that are in school, doing different things with school, but most of us are also doing something outside of our jobs, which I think creates a really incredible team so that not everybody's, we're not just focused on the farm. So Brianne um, is out of college. She's studying and working as a dog trainer. So she's building a dog training business on the side. And then there's Eric, who is working on his thesis in Bumblebee DNA. And then almost everybody else is either in school working on their degrees, or we have a lady who's um, in town. She's taking care of her elderly parents. So she has sort of another life that she's working on. Um, so everybody kind of has their own thing in addition to what they're doing. And we take that family of people that are on our team very seriously. Like we worked really to, well together and we work, um, we help each other because we really are a family and everybody's going through something or working on something. And it's really important to be kind to each other and compassionate and support each other through whatever we're going through. And I, that makes such a special thing at the farm. I mean, it just is such a special relationship that we all have. And people feel that and comment about it all the time, about what a great team we are. Like we just did, um, Gary Chapman came to town, who did the five languages of appreciation. He wrote the five love languages. So he was just in town and did a talk and six of us went to listen to him. So we've all read the book, taken the test, and we're looking at how we work together from that. Um, and it was interesting, like five of us our top thing is quality time. And it's like, well, no wonder we're always in the kitchen talking because <laughs> we're all quality time. So it's it's just, it's um, it's such a gift to work with a group of people in that way and to take that serious and to have the freedom to take that seriously. You know, if I was working in a bank, we probably wouldn't have that ability to do that. But because it's our place and our farm, we can do that and we can spend that time together and really appreciate one another. And it makes for such a special environment. But this is also something that you've been intentional about, though. Like, it's not just random chance that you have a strong culture. Um, because that doesn't happen by accident. Um, it would be easier for you to hire migrant workers that, you know, were cheaper to pay for. And like, you know, there are different choices that you could have made throughout all of this. And so... Um, while yes, it may be harder to talk about the five love languages at, you know, at a bank than it is at, at your particular farm, there's also steps you've taken to to build to build a strong culture and to build strong teamwork. And so um what have those like whatever those choices been and, and when they came up, like what made it clear that you needed to do X versus Y? Hmm. Good question. Um, I think at every turn when it's come up, it's just the way that I want to do it. I mean, I, this farm to me is a family and, um, on my days when I'm really challenged by all of it, my thing is like, you know, I could be working at a bank, but I choose to be here. And if we're going to do this, let's do it well. And let's do it with respect. And, Kindness and and it's it flows out the same way with the customers. It's like we could just have you know two hundred people showing up and just treat them as customers, or we could welcome them at their car and really give them time and space to get unloaded before we jump in their face. And we do all of those things because we want them to have an experience of what it's like to be treated kindly and with respect 
and appreciated for who they are and why they come. Um, so it's just something that at every turn we've done. And I think part of it is that Brianne, who's been on for so long, is on board with it so that I'm not the only one saying, let's do this. You know, there was there's been different times that I've had to like play that leadership role of saying, you know, this is where we need to go with this. And this is if we're going to do this, this is the way I want to do it. So I'm not sure I answered your question. No, you did. I think it's just one of those things that's so innate to you at this point that you don't see that there are choices being made. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned Brienne at this point, like um, you've gone from being on the farm 24-7 and having to run everything um, to not being on the farm and mm-hmm. having to run everything. Um, mm-hmm. And that, again, is an intentional choice, right? Because they, it would have been easier or more natural for you to still be there right um Mm -hmm. at the farm doing that so call us talk to us about that journey because again that's the same journey that i mean we're talking about a farm but we're also talking about business business culture and how to build a team right and so a lot of people whether they're chasing alpacas around or whether they're writing words on the screen or whether they're you know making dog collars or whatever it is there's a point to which um, they can either be there 24 seven doing everything, or they can start thinking in terms of like, is it time to turn the reins over to other people? So how's that right. journey been for you? And, and really it's, what was the catalyst for it? It's been a real struggle. I have to say that that is, um, you know, one of the, one of my positive points is that I'm passionate about everything and I love what I do. And that's also my downfall because it's really hard to let go of things when I love doing them. Um, But what I see is that with everything I turn over, we grow. Like it happens over and over again. Um, And and it's hard. So right now the structure is that we have Brianne on board and we also have Eric. So it's really three of us kind of leading it. And we've separated things out. Brianne's in charge of the store. Eric's in charge of the farm. And I'm in charge of the accounting and that part of it. Um, And, you know, the out and about public public part of what we do. Um, And it's very easy. So something comes up and somebody comes to me and asks me a question. It's very hard to say, sorry. I mean, it's my place, but don't ask me, ask Eric. (laughs) And that's hard to do. That's really hard to do. And, um, And we struggle with it all the time, but we're a team working to do it. And we've gotten in the last year, we've gotten so big, we have to we just have to. And so then the three of us are working together as a team to meet on a regular basis and communicate on a regular basis to make sure that we're clear so that as those things come to us, we can handle them with the right, you know, in the right point of view. So, um, but it's a struggle. It's a real struggle. And the most recent thing, <laughs> this is going to be a, Charlie's going to say, I told you so, um, is that we turned over payroll. Now, it takes me, I've timed it, it takes me less than 45 minutes to start and complete our payroll from figuring out what the hours are using the program we have to writing the checks, signing the checks, filing everything, right? It takes 45 minutes. And yet I got to the point and I was like, you know what, we need to turn this over. We just, it's time to turn this over. So now I have somebody in Boone, which is 30 minutes away, writing our paychecks it takes me more time to go and pick up the paychecks and bring them back than it did for me to do them. So, and I was like, at one point I was like, this is ridiculous. Now I'm spending an hour trying to go get them and working my day around going to get them. But what the difference is, is that I now have an accountant who's on board with what we're doing, who every time I walk in the door can celebrate my wins with me. And I didn't have that before. Like I was running the business and we would have a really good day or we would make some big new hurdle or meet some goal and there was nobody to celebrate that with. And that is worth the hour that I spend to go get it and more. Could he not mail it to you? Yeah, but then they wouldn't get it as fast. So not mail it two days earlier. Yeah, well, we pay, we pay, the way we have it set up, we've actually bumped it back a day. We pay, you know, we end our week on Sunday and they get their checks on Monday or Tuesday. So, um, yeah, Lee knows I'm half messing with her too because there, there's some, I know. but at I know. the same point, going in and having your accountant 
like celebrate the wins with you. You're not driving for the check anymore, right? No, no, there's no driving for the check. And we we may change how that's done in the future, but for now that's, you know, and it's it's so big because they know what's going on. It's like, well, how was Thanksgiving weekend? And and I tell them what our numbers were and they're like, oh my goodness, that's incredible. Like none of the other businesses we're working with are having these kinds of gains. And I didn't have that before. And that's huge, especially because for small businesses, um, there's so much fear and like avoidance around the numbers and around the, you know, all those aspect of things, right? Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. the natural response that people will do will be to hold on to them. And like, I'm, I'm going to control everything, and I'm kind of embarrassed and ashamed about some of this, and so on and so forth, right? Right. right. Um, but the huge downside is that um, wins like that are not necessarily team wins. They're sort of like you're parsing out information, and there's not that level of team accountability and team sort of visibility of what's happening. And mm-hmm. so when on that random Tuesday, when someone's sitting there, they may or may not, you know, know about or care about how their decisions affect these things that actually really do matter to the business, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it also yeah. sets you up so that like when you're out and traveling and, and, you know, doing speaking things like this, like stuff's getting done. That's 40, like people are still going to get paid and you can do whatever you need to do. Right. right. Um, and right. it's less dependent upon you. Right. And and literally the only thing between where we are now and having those paychecks happen without me being in town or him signing a signature card that goes to the bank. And then he could do the whole thing and somebody else could pick him up, you know. So there's we're that close to something like that. But I used to have to plan every trip around payroll. So I would get home on really late Sunday night or Monday and then hit the ground and do payroll. So it's a huge a huge relief, even though in the beginning I was like, it's an hour to drive. To. <laughs> well, I mean, I think what we're talking about, though, is there's a difference between the responsibility load that you can feel in a business, right? Where mm-hmm. like that's that level of responsibility. And yes, it might only take you an hour out of the month, out of the month or, you know, every other month to, to every other week to do it. But still is that sense of responsibility and load and, and everything else that goes with it. Um, Mm -hmm. and when that, when something like this is handed over, you don't feel that responsibility anymore. Like, you know, that people are going to get paid. Um, you know, it's going to be done well, you know, that there's someone else watching it and celebrating with you and you can focus on other things like, you know, writing your book or writing your memoir Mm -hmm. or, you know, Mm -hmm. hiring a new person. Right. Um, and things like that. And I think that's, I think we under, we discount that responsibility load. And the overcount yes, the, the weight. time, the weight. Yes, yeah, the weight, the weight, the weight. Yeah, and and the other thing that I notice for me is it's you know when I can do these things alone, it seems silly to include somebody else to do it. But there's a benefit to doing it together versus doing it alone. It's a huge benefit, and I think we forget as these solopreneurs that have sort of forged land on our own or whatever it is that we've done. I think it's easy to forget that. Having somebody in in house helping with what goes on creates a better product. So it takes longer, but tends to be better, right? So I think that, so. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, that's my new my new thing. What is so. the new thing? Is doing it together or doing it doing it together and realizing that there's certain things that I do I do better having somebody do it with me than to do it alone. Yeah, so. Well, just so that we know, what are those things? Just just to get a feel for it. So, like, we're in the process of launching blog and starting to do content and things like that. That is something that I would go off and do alone. But I think I would do better if I had somebody to support me. And without pulling from or putting more on the group at the farm, it would be a better thing to have that support. So, um, so I'm looking at hiring some sort of personal assistant that would help me with some of the blog things and, you know, maybe getting, you know, a bio photo that works so that I could send that out when I need to send it out or to handle some of those details so that it's not just me carrying that load because it is a lot. And I think, I don't know, I, I'm, I'm like that. I will carry it and then be overwhelmed and not realize what a weight it is until I let it go. Well, 
what I've experienced in this scenario <laughs> is it's not just that you're carrying the weight, but there's this weird thing, and, and maybe this is true for you, but like at a certain point, you start resenting people for weird things when you're carrying, like when you're over carrying a load, like it, all of a sudden it becomes like you're, you're carrying the load for the blog and then you're driving up to the farm and then you see someone not working and that triggers the crap out of you because you're good. You're doing all this sort of stuff and then they're not doing something. And it's like, what the hell is your problem? Right. 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 Um, right. You know, right. and so it creates these sort of weird relationships and resentments, right? Um, right? That I think we we don't pay enough attention to when there are our own sort of things. It's easier for me to see externally because I do this, right? But um, does that make sense, though? Yeah, it totally makes sense. And but I think we discount empowering ourselves to do what it is that we say we want to do. It's like you know we want to be this, but then we don't empower ourselves with the support to do this that we say we want to do. Um, I, maybe I should say I, because the, I may be the only one that does that. I promise so. you, you're not the only one that does that. <laughs> well, I mean, there's also context here, right? Because while you were growing this farm, you were also a single mother, right? Mm-hmm. And there's, um, a, I might get in, I might get into a lot of trouble here, but I got to get in trouble at least once on the podcast, right? Um, is that I think there becomes sort of a mentalities that sometimes single mothers can have about asking for help and receiving help and things like that and what that might mean, mm-hmm. so on and so forth. And so for you to get to the point to where um, you're allowing other people to help you, like that's actually a huge personal and business growth thing at the same time. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? No, it does make sense. It does make sense. Right. Yeah. And so for you to be like, Hey, I could do this, but someone else could do it and someone else could help me and so on and so forth. Like it's not just the sort of logical thought process. There's, there's identity tugs that come into these things mm-hmm. that sometimes um, we undercount or just don't see, you know, in those ways. Right. Right. So um, you were letting me know before, um, before we started recording that we're just rolling off of Thanksgiving and you've had the best Thanksgiving yet, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. So, um, which poses a lot of, a lot of different <laughs> questions, but one is, um, with the growth that you're going through right now, what's your biggest challenge? Well, my biggest challenge, my personal biggest challenge right now is still, um, as this business is growing and, um, and the growth is accelerating is, still trying to find the time to step away and work on a book because I'm working on a memoir. Um, so, and I, you know, back to this whole thing, I struggle with taking the time to work on the memoir. And on top of that, I already struggle with taking time off just to take time off. Right. So doing nothing is not an easy thing for me to do. Um, and the only thing that keeps it balanced is that I, you know, knit for an hour a day and I listen to podcasts and I do things like that. But so right now, the the challenge is that I'm wanting to step away at the exact same time that the business is growing exponentially. Wonder if there's any connection there. Um, <laughs> so that's that's my still my real struggle. And you know, I would love to be on a podcast next year and say that I've gotten through it. So it's it's still just a real um, because by the time. So, so for instance, Thanksgiving weekend. So we had over 200 people come on Friday and over 200 people come on Saturday. So we did, I think we've done 28 tours this week, right? That's a really big week for us. Um, lots of people, lots of energy outlay. And it's exhausting. You know, I love connecting with the people. I love having people come. But at the end of it, I am just plumb so tired. I can barely move. My feet hurt. And, you know, and I'm no spring chicken anymore. So there's that to consider. And and then I expect to be able to get up the next morning and write. And, it, you know, they're just the reality of it is that there has to be more time to rest before there's time to write. And how to manage that, you know, working with the different seasons that we have and when I have more time that I can pull away and not wanting to leave because I don't um, I don't pull away from the farm because I don't want to be there. I really want to be there. I just have other things I want to do as well. Yeah, well, give us a little context because you mentioned um, about the growth here because you mentioned that 
you know, certain number of visits over the last week. Where was this, say, two years ago or a year ago? So, so people can kind of see the hockey stick here. Um, well, we're about for no. So there's a couple of different ways we measure the number of tours that we do in a year, and we're open year round doing tours. Um, we generally do one a day. And so during Thanksgiving weekend, obviously, we do more than that. But there's only so much room for adding more tours. But we're up 32% already this year over last year. Um, and and then the other thing is, is that we sometimes have more people on a tour than another time. So the tour numbers, the dollars, give us a sense of how many more people are on a tour. And we're up 46% over last year, which is a pretty big chunk of increase. Yeah. Right? Well, and I, if I remember correctly, just from our conversations last year was a big jump over the previous year too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And so, yeah. um, those are fairly substantial numbers that when you think about the fact that this is, I mean, it's not a virtual business, like scaling has its cost, right? There are only so many parking spots. There yeah, we doubled some, those. We doubled know, those and then filled them. <laughs> you doubled those and then filled them. But what I'm saying is, like, it's it growth. Yeah, there's there's a reality to it. There's a, and there are only so many you know animals for people to see, and there are only so many you know there's only mm-hmm. so much space. And so, in a physical business, this type of growth um, has a different feeling, has a different way in which it goes about than other types of businesses where you double your growth and you know um, nothing changes except for the number of emails that that you end up responding to. Right. 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 And then, and then our year to date sales figures are up like 35%. So we've, I mean, we've, it's a big increase, which means there's more orders for product. We're working with making sure we have the product in that we can sell in the store. Um, And we're, we're actually answering the call really well in terms of numbers of people coming with the way that we've set things up. Um, There was one point we had a hundred people on the property and you would have never known that there were more than 10. I mean, it was just amazing. So it's very smooth. And that's because we've got a really good group of people. And we're very focused on making strategically finding ways to make that work. Um, so systems and all sorts of stuff that will make that work better. Yeah. So yeah, but it's not it's a harder time to then step away. Right? Because it's not like I don't want to be a part of that. I do want to be a part of that. That's what I've worked so hard for is this, right? And then to say, okay, see you later. Peace out. <laughs> I'm leaving. I'm going to go write a book. You know, it's it's hard. So, so I'm struggling with that, writing a book in the midst of being busy and taking care of myself, which is already a struggle. Yeah, so it's the expectations game, right? Um, in the sense of, the the question would be is in this really busy period of time, like trust me as a writer and as author, I know about the important momentum that happens when you're writing a book and your own deadlines and things like that. And there's also Mm -hmm. the reality that there's only so much energy to go around. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so it's just altering one's expectations to say, okay, during this period, here's a reasonable expectation for, for what I can do. And it's not going to be what it's like in the summer or in the dead of winter no one's right. here, right? And so, right. Um, except for we, I don't know. I I'd imagine it's easy with what you've got going on it, to always feel like you should be spending more time on each part of the different things that you're doing. So whether it's the store, whether it's the blog, whether it's the book, whether it's the farm, like everyone mm-hmm. could everyone could be a full time job. Probably, yeah. And yeah. so, yeah. um. So how do you manage those expectations? I, I mean, I know it's a struggle, but you're making it through it apparently. So, um, so I'm, so I've done, um, well, some of the, the really simple, obvious things that I've done is that I have days that I do certain things. So like Monday is my accounting day, which just happens to be payroll day. Um, Sunday is usually a day off if that works, if we don't have an event going on. And then Tuesday and Wednesday are days that I go and write. And Thursday is sort of a flex day and Friday I'm back at the farm so that Bree and Eric and I can do some strategic meeting kind of stuff. And it's also a catch up day for accounting. And then Saturday is the day that I plan to be 100% in with a farm. So I am just there 100%. I have no agenda, but to be there and be present with the people that are on the team, the animals and the people who visit. And that works actually really well. Um, I think it's different for everybody in terms of what their schedule is. 
you know, and then and then it all gets shifted around because Will comes home from college and stays up late and then my schedule gets thrown off. But that's I think that that's what life's about is like resetting and refocusing. Absolutely. Constantly, Absolutely. constantly. Yeah. It's not a perfect world. I like it. Like we build systems and the reason we build systems is so that we can be freed up to focus on other things and then go back and change the system. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah, yep. that, that, that pretty much sums it up. <laughs> Does that sort of sum it up? <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, yeah, I think when people think about um, creating these routines and systems, uh, that the first sort of reaction is, but what happens when things get crazier? Well, you mm -hmm. adjust, mm -hmm. right? I mean, it's really that that simple. And then when they're not as crazy, mm -hmm. you go back to your system. Or right. if you notice that things get crazy because of a lack of a system or because of something in the system, then you change it, right? right. Um, right. But then there are natural times, like when you're in... Whatever it is that you do, like yours happens to be a farm, you happen to know that around Thanksgiving weekend, like there is no sense in which you would not want it to be busy at the farm, right? That's exactly right. what you're shooting right. for. Right, exactly. So the exactly. whole system is actually designed to for that period of time for the system not to work, right, right. in that way. And right. it's, it's, so yeah, that that's really it. And um as far as, you know, for people curious about creating sort of daily themes and, and things like that, um, check out the post that we have on time blocking because we have a tool mm -hmm. that allows one to do that, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And it's a very powerful way um, to show up because, again, you can't be everywhere all at once. Right. And I find that... I found that when I shifted to having, because I was trying to do it all a little bit every day. And, you know, when I when I gave it certain days, like you sit me down on Monday and boy, my accounting genes are just fired, you know, and I'm like, get it done, get it done. And I think in a way with certain tasks, it's easier to get more done like that than it is to do an hour a day. I think I would get more done in a six hour day than I would six hours over a week. Because you got to start and then get into it and then you got to pull out of it and it's a whole different thing. And then the other thing that I do is that I have I have a morning practice like so many people these days that includes meditating and reading and or writing. So I kind of the reading and writing are up for grabs whether I do one or the other or both. Um, the new the latest update on my iPhone. On the timer, it has a little button at the bottom and you can like snooze the timer and reset it to do it again, <laughs> which is dangerous because I'll be like in meditation, like snooze. <laughs> okay, get another 10 minutes. <laughs> anyway, but um, so I do that and then I focus on getting three things done that are the most important that day. That's like all those really simple things. And then I try to have the nighttime be my time and I usually knit for like an hour a day and that's my creative output. I'm also working on some weaving stuff and things like that, that I'm doing something different for me that is very clearly creative for me. That's fantastic. And and thanks for sharing all those routines. Because again, without the first part of the conversation it, with the context that you're talking about a farm, right, and managing and, and owning a farm, like those practices would be something that you would probably do in any other type of business that you would mm -hmm. be running. Mm -hmm. Like those are fairly universal sort of things um, that we're talking about. And so they apply, right? Whether you're, again, chasing alpacas around or falling in love in their eyes, whichever works for you, right? <laughs> um, or, you know, working on your writing business so on and so forth, right? So thanks so much for sharing that. Because again, um, it's one of those things like, it's not just that, it, you know, it works at the farm, so it'll work for you. But like these principles that we talk about work in a, in a wide variety of contexts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and we just see them over and over again. Right. All right. So as the guest on today's episode, you get to leave our listeners with an invitation or a challenge, depending upon which one most resonates with you. So based upon what we've talked about, what would you invite or challenge our listeners to, um, do? Ooh, okay. So based on what we've talked about, um, I think that one of the reasons that I started a farm was to create a family, which is something that I wanted and needed. But I think the reason that I share the farm is because I want to give that because it's something that I in turn need to receive. That makes sense. It does make sense. So my challenge would be to look at what you're doing 
from the standpoint of what it is, what is it that you are giving that you need to receive and start receiving it? That's fantastic. Lee, thanks so much for joining me and sharing your story and the story of the farm. Thank you, Charlie. All right, listeners. So you heard it from Lee. What is it about what you're doing that is sharing something that, you know, sharing a gift with somebody that is the same thing that you need to receive? What's the gift you're giving that's the same thing you need to receive? Until next time, stand tall. Thanks for listening to Productive Flourishing. To get more resources that'll help you finish the work that matters and be your best self in the world, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. If this episode warmed your heart or got your wheels turning, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a review for the podcast on iTunes.